Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 126 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I'm having a conversation with Jared Lyon, president and CEO of the Student Veterans of America. As part of a series highlighting the partners of the Warrior Wellness Alliance, my conversation with Jared centers around what SVA does and the fact that mental health and wellness is also a necessary conversation for veterans going to school after the military. Uh, to be honest with you, before my involvement with President Bush and the Warrior Wellness Alliance, I was always fairly reluctant to have conversations about behavioral and mental health. Uh, but I was reluctant because, you know, I felt as a veteran and an observer of our community that it seemed to be the only thing people could talk about, almost sometimes uh, with a morbid-like fascination. And I wasn't sure that it was contributing to a positive uh, conversation. But with our work with the Warrior Wellness Alliance, other veteran organizations uh, and providers and clinicians, what I better gain the understanding is that like overall mental and behavioral well-being is an objective for all Americans. And, you know, I think that our country is facing a behavioral mental health crisis. Uh, it's not a conversation that anyone is willing to have, but aren't we nothing if we are not the leaders that the military taught us to be? And so difficult and uncomfortable conversations, even if nothing else but being willing to have them and open to learn more about them, is something that I think that veterans bring to this bigger American behavioral mental health conversation. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that I'm not always focusing on sort of the fear-based psychology of PTSD and TBI. Um, the goal to talk about veteran mental health is really talk about wellness in post-military life and growth in post-military life. Uh, and my guest today is somebody uh, who works for an organization with an organization that does exactly that for hundreds of thousands of veterans across the nation. Uh, so my guest today is Jared Lyon from the Student Veterans of America. Jared, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me, Dwayne. Appreciate it. Yeah, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, everything that you're doing, obviously. And, and as you and I were talking just a bit ago, um, as a, a student myself, um, uh, navigating in my late thirties and forties in this non-traditional role, um, and, and then sort of what you're doing at SVA, um, definitely been watching it, definitely love it. But before we get into what SVA is doing and what you're doing and sort of the future, what's going on, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of how you got here. Yeah, no doubt. So um, I, I was born in a small town in Carver, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, it's right next to Plymouth. So uh, if you've ever celebrated Thanksgiving and had cranberry sauce, high probability it came from my hometown. Um, but uh, I, my family moved my senior year in high school to Orlando, Florida, uh, which is ultimately where I graduated uh, in 2001. And uh, I enlisted in the world's finest Navy in August of 2001. So um, I had actually joined the peacetime military and September 11th occurred while I was in basic training. So um, the world changed not just for me and the nature of my service, but, but literally for, for millions of our sisters and brothers in arms in the post 9-11 era. Um, so I served primarily as a, as a submariner. Uh, I was also a diver on submarines and uh, uh, deployed uh, three different times to include a, an around-the-world deployment. So I was actually on the uh, first U.S. nuclear vessel uh, to circumnavigate the globe via the Arctic, uh, which is uh, kind of a, a neat little uh, part of naval history uh, to be a part of, uh, and that was on the USS Alexandria. Uh, she was a fast attack submarine, uh, separated from active duty in 2005. Um, Initially uh, made my transition uh, in defense contracting. Uh, uh, worked at a, uh, a small defense contractor. Uh, uh, you've probably never heard of him. I'm, I'm being a little facetious. It was Northrop Grumman. Um, and I was going to community college at night uh, to uh, earn my associate's degree. Um, left my first uh, uh, job out of the Navy um, in tail end of, uh, of 2006. And uh, then I kind of made my venture into entrepreneurship. Um, the, the joke I always made is, uh, is that I learned a lot, which is a uh, code for entrepreneurs. Uh, that means I lost a lot of money. Uh, so I learned a lot. Um, and in that uh, uh, experience, I spent about three months uh, unemployed and looking for what my next uh, opportunity was going to be. Um, and uh, uh, wound up starting uh, a small little boutique consulting firm, um, actually with just a, a good friend of mine, uh, that led me to uh, Major League Baseball, actually, where uh, I eventually wound up taking a full-time position with the Washington Nationals and serving as their uh, manager of Florida operations. Um, so Florida operations uh, for the Nats primarily was spring training, minor league player development, and the physical rehabilitation program for the Nationals. Uh, so I did that job for three seasons uh, before uh, leaving um, to uh, to actually continue to pursue my education. And, and for me, up until this point, I'd always called a bachelor's degree a, a check in the box. And that was primarily because every time I filled out a job application, I could never check the box that said bachelor's degree to be eligible for management type positions. So um, I had applied to Florida State University um, and received acceptance because I had already had an associate's degree at a state community college. Uh, I was admitted as a transfer junior. Uh, initially started majoring in uh, political science, but had shifted that to social science and uh, got very involved with veteran advocacy, uh, specifically student veteran advocacy, while I was an undergrad at Florida State, um, working with my then university president, uh, Dr. Eric Barron, who's now the president of Penn State, 
but when he was the president of Florida State, we uh, worked on an initiative to try to make Florida State University more inclusive of all generations of veterans, past, present, and future. That got me on the radar of Student Veterans of America, where I was able to start doing some national advocacy, and in 2011 became the National Student Veteran of the Year. I graduated from Florida State uh, at the tail end of 2011. Uh, and took a job at Syracuse University. Uh, they were getting ready to stand up a new interdisciplinary research institute uh, that became known as the Institute for Veterans and Military Families. And specifically, I managed a program called the Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans and the Entrepreneurship Boot Camp for Veterans Families. It was a consortium of eight universities across the country, Syracuse University, Cornell, Purdue, University of Connecticut, Louisiana State University, Florida State University, Texas A&M, and uh, uh, UCLA, that offered no-cost entrepreneurship training to veterans and their families. Uh, you did not have to use your GI Bill. It was an intensive 14-month uh, uh, immersion program uh, that included some online training, uh, nine days of residency training, and then access to mentors, uh, financing, capital, uh, those types of things for 12 months after completion of the program. I uh, did that for three years, also went to graduate school at Syracuse University, uh, where I eventually became uh, an adjunct in the business school, specifically the entrepreneurship department, uh, where I taught uh, a 300-level course called Introduction to Entrepreneurship and Emerging Enterprises. Uh, from there, uh, I took a job at Student Veterans of America in 2014, tail end of that, originally as the chief development officer, and then um, uh, became the internal candidate to become uh, the president and CEO of the organization. Uh, and after a nationwide executive search and some 200-plus uh, candidates, I, I became the internal hire, uh, and I've been the uh, CEO since uh, January of 2016. Uh, so th th that's that's my story, Dwayne. That's, uh, that's in a nutshell, and in 20 years summed up in five minutes. So uh, let me get this straight. Submariner, diver, student, night student, non-traditional student, contractor for one of the, the nation's largest contractors, Major League Baseball, a student again, um, getting into veteran advocacy, professor. Um, now, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because that's a lot of different stuff. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out, brother. <laughs> Apparently, I'm not very good at holding down a job, though. So, <laughs> Well, but I, I think that in, in just seeing that, this is something, this is a path that many veterans um, come out. You know, did, did you think when you got out of the Navy that you were going to be um, you know, leading a, a veteran student organization uh, because you bounced around a lot. I think I, I dropped on, entrepreneur out of that. Uh, but even going all the way back, being a submariner, being a diver, it's it's not for the faint of heart. Um, my my cousin was a submariner in the the mid nineties, and and um, you know, it just being a diver is some dangerous stuff. Uh, you know, that's some excitement, adventure, really wild things kind of stuff. And and how did you go from there to being involved in higher education? Yeah, quite a journey, actually. I mean, uh, originally, brother, to be honest with you, um, so I, I, I always love to make uh, the point that I was, I was enlisted. Um, you know, I think oftentimes, um, you know, when you look around the space, sometimes uh, people associate uh, leaders of veteran-serving organizations as officers. I, I always like to point out, I was enlisted, and the highest rank I ever made was E5. So um, uh, th that all said, m when I first got out of the Navy, um, it was actually due to a little bit of a shortcoming, in my opinion. I, I had applied to the Blue to Gold program to, to, to seek a commission, 
and I didn't get it. My SAT scores were not um, totally up to par, but I remember having a really great conversation with my commanding officer and executive officer um, who were very encouraging of me to, um, you know, they were going to help me study for my SAT. I was going to make some time for an SAT prep course. They, they wanted me to reapply. They, they thought I was a really good candidate for the program, and they didn't want me to take the notion that I didn't get it to not continue to try it. But uh, Dwayne, I just made you know, some quick calculations, some basic math. And it was, you know, it's a lengthy process to apply to one of those programs. I mean, the whole thing takes you almost two years. And then at the end of it, you, this, the answer still might be no. So I was facing a reenlistment to then uh, apply for the program. And the basic math that I did is I was like, gosh, if I'm, if I'm looking to ultimately seek a commission anyway, I had uh, a real strong desire to be uh, an explosive ordnance disposal officer. Um, essentially, if you think back to that time, 2005, um, you know, the wars uh, were heating up in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the usage of improvised explosive devices were, were, were bigger than ever, and they needed folks to do that job. Um, I had been exposed uh, to EOD guys when I was um, at the Naval Dive and Salvage Training Center in Panama City Beach, Florida. And for me, I was like, man, what, what an awesome mission. That all to say, I knew it would be faster if I separated from active duty, finished my degree, and then sought a commission through OCS than it would have been uh, perhaps through the Blue to Gold program. So I initially got out with the intention to come right back in. Life is funny that way, though. Uh, you know, I, I got out, took the journey, as we've already described, but education was something I always knew I would complete. I, I even took some, um, some classes while I was on active duty using tuition assistance. Um, so I always knew uh, I wanted to pursue education, um, but I didn't really know why other than because I knew to commission you needed to have a degree. When I separated from active duty, though, education wound up being that, that one thing that, you know, I, I come from a pretty blue-collar family. My dad's an electrician. My mom ran a daycare. And, uh, you know, not many people in my, college, uh, my family went to college, my parents uh, as well. So being that first-generation college student, it wasn't until I separated from active duty and started to be exposed to the broader idea of the civilian world and opportunities that were available, how limiting sometimes not having a formal education could be. And for me, I knew that achieving a bachelor's degree would never close any doors and that it was uh, sort of a, a crux to opportunity because separating from active duty, being uh, you know, an E5, having some leadership experience, having some deployments under my belt, I knew didn't matter much for anything if I wanted to get into management without also having the civilian credential required, which was a bachelor's degree. So that really kind of stuck with me. So no, when I separated, I wasn't really kind of envisioning a, a career in a veteran service organization or in academia. However, as I got out and started widening my aperture to the opportunities that were available to one in the civilian world and the real diversity of those opportunities, that it started to kind of click that education was you know, a key to opportunity. And, and I associated the two. So that's, that's kind of where the, uh, the notion for ultimately, you know, going to grad school, finishing my undergrad really started to take hold for me. See, and that's, uh, it's always interesting to hear, you know, this idea of, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, and then you, you, you hit a hard left turn that you weren't expecting and end <laughs> up somewhere else that, that, 
you know, that you didn't even imagine. Um, right. and even this idea of, of being the, the first generation college student, right? A lot of people think uh, when they hear that, that this is a point of pride, right? You know, I'm the first one to, to, in my family to graduate and so on. Um, but there are some real deficits that come along with being a first generation college student. Um, w- when I, um, graduated high school and I was thinking college and, and this is back in the mid nineties, um, it, neither my parents, my stepfather, you know, nobody knew anything about the admissions process or student mm-hmm. loans or anything like that. I think I had applied to one, uh, a single school and it was a private out of state Catholic school. And I didn't realize that with every adjective, you added $20,000 on top of it, right? So I didn't have anybody to help me through this. And that's really what a lot of first-generation college students in general, um, but definitely veterans coming out that you know that there's a destination there, but there's really nobody there to kind of help you. Whereas I'm doing that with my kids, right? So I've been through the application process and I'm helping them and, and sort of guiding them through. And they're no longer first generation because, because of my degrees. Um, was that something that you found challenging is trying to figure it all out on your own? Yeah, man. And, and I, I just, you know, to, for <laughs> more for the record, Dwayne, I am a first generation college student, but my baby sister beat me to a bachelor's degree. So I, I always love to give, uh, give her the credit for that. But, she doesn't have a master's, so I, you know, I, I guess I could take that. But all, all that to say, I mean, that first-generation college student uh, notion, I would certainly say that it's a badge of honor. And what we know from the research that we do at Student Veterans of America is that nearly two-thirds of all student veterans in college right now are, are a lot like me, a first-generation college student themselves. Further, um, when you think about higher education, I think the last statistic that I saw you know, uh, nationwide incoming freshman class is is only about 30% first-generation college student. So when you kind of think about that, a, a lot of people that do go to college come from families of folks that went to college. And further, the mention that you have of the notion of, did I find some challenges? Heck yeah, I did, man. I mean, my parents are um, some of the most thoughtful, caring, and intelligent human beings that I know. And uh, I mean, they're literally high school sweethearts. The two of them are you know, almost gush over each other, right? Which is great. But, you know, when the conversation came up when I was in high school about college, and I'm the oldest of three, you know, it was always followed by, you know, and I'm not sure how we would afford college. So, you know, you you, you should think through how to get a scholarship. And for me, that was through athletics, right? Like I, I was an, a, a good enough student, but I often felt like the dumbest guy in a room full of smart people in my AP classes, right? And that's a trend that's held true for me a lot. But when you think about how Americans make our decisions about post-secondary opportunities, you know, it kind of comes down to two primary uh, factors. The, the first is high school guidance counselors, and the second is family affinity structures. So most of us, when we separate after our first tour, uh, doing about six years, whether, you know, we're enlisted or, or not, you know, think think about that. Just basic math. I mean, most of us are in that, like, 24, 25, 26-year-old range, and going back to your high school guidance counselor to say, hey, could I get some advice about college might be a little awkward. And, you know, if your family affinity structure is primarily comprised, as it is for most veterans, of first-gen college students, you know, you're kind of on your own to figure it out. And so for me, I think like a lot in our generation, college became like a like an on-the-job learning opportunity, right? I had some trials and error, and, and, and I think additionally – 
uh, I got lucky, as many do, in that I was able to, to transition to my first entree to higher education after the classes I took on active duty was through a community college. And community colleges are these great opportunities to provide college access in, in a couple of unique ways. First, many community colleges tend to be fairly generous um, with their awarding of credit for military service. So the service that I had in the Navy, the courses that I took, and the, uh, the experience I gained actually translated to some college credit a little bit more generously at a community college than it might have at a four-year. Secondly, it allowed me to avoid um, having to uh, take the ACT or the SAT as an admissions uh, or an entrance exam, right? Um, And then third, it allowed me to knock off some of that academic rust in a smaller classroom size at community college. All this translated to me being able to make a great transition out of active duty in the Navy through higher education onto the ability to matriculate to a four-year and be fully ready. I, the, the, the force factor for me, Dwayne, that was, that was pretty cool about a community college is the classes were taught at all these different times. So you could take early morning classes, classes during the day, or classes at night, which is a lot more conducive to a work schedule for me. And what a lot of people don't realize about the GI Bill is, you know, it was essentially designed for a 22-year-old single person with no dependents. So if you are in that category, most assuredly, the GI Bill uh, might cover all your bills. But for nearly 75% of all veterans in higher education, we don't meet that description. So many of us are working full or part-time while we're in school. So transitioning through community college also gave me the flexibility of class schedule versus work schedule so that I could kind of do it all, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. And and I, I recall this is something that, that you had touched on when you and I had first met several months ago, about uh, mid last year, is this idea of, of veterans or non-traditional college students, right? And and if we you can, I, I have this idea of, you know, as veterans go, so go our nation, right? You know, if we can figure out how to solve veteran homelessness, we can apply that to homelessness writ large. If we can figure out how to serve our non-traditional veteran students in this very contained population, uh, a large number of students, and, and obviously this is your area of expertise, but a, a large number of non-veteran students are just um, non-traditional students, whether they're um, going part-time or they're doing online and things like that. Um, and and if we can figure out how to best serve non-traditional students, those being student veterans, we can then apply that to um, you know higher education as a whole. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, brother. And you know, I, I, I've heard you interchangeably use uh, student veterans and veteran students. I, I think words do matter in this regard. And, you know, a, a, a veteran student connotes a Tommy Boyer Van Wilder of sorts who's been trying to finish their, you know, bachelor's degree for 30 years. A student veteran is somebody who's a student first, but also has all these other sides of their identity to include service to their nation. So we always put the student veteran first and foremost in that description because I think it helps people understand why they're in college, right? They're, they're not in college because they're veterans and have free GI Bill, right? They're in college because they're students, meant there to be scholars, to, to prepare for the rest of their lives. And a quote that I love uh, that supports this very well and sits on the back of our national headquarters challenge coin is, the nation that makes a great distinction between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. We are students first when we're back in school. And exactly to your point about where veterans go, so go a nation. To, to put numbers to that, 
it's predicted that by 2025, the majority, that means over 50% of all students that are in post-secondary education will actually be non-traditional students defined by the Department of Education as over the age of 25. So in true fashion to the concept that you introduced, brother, I believe that veterans are quite literally the tip of the spear for the wave of non-traditional students that are coming to higher education. And if you think about it, as our nation um, is an ever-expanding competitor on a global scale and our ability to function in that global economy, uh, the importance of post-secondary education to our society uh, is, is really paramount. And the thing that's pretty cool about veterans is that we're really leading the way. And if we can figure out how to better adapt higher education from a recruitment, um, an orientation slash onboarding, retention, and then success post-secondary or post-graduation, then we've solved it for all non-traditional students, for all first-generation college students, and really for all Americans that have been left out of post-secondary opportunities uh, for any number of reasons. So I couldn't agree with you more um, that, that veterans are truly that tip of the spear as it pertains to non-traditional students in a traditional higher education environment. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And, and, and I do appreciate the identification in, in that uh, difference between veteran students and student veterans. It's like on, on Tommy Boy, he says lots of people go to college for eight <laughs> years and yeah, they're called doctors, right? Um, <laughs> and, thing. And, and this idea of, and so here you are, you're 10 years on a movie, but, but if my calculations are correct, you started getting involved around 2009 or 10, uh, as you were student yep. veterans of the year in 2011. Uh, but you could have just, you know, head down, plowed forward, got your degree, but, um, I imagine I was still active duty at the time, but there were a lot of the, um, early combat veterans that were starting to emerge in the higher education space. Were they not, I don't want to say were they not being necessarily served, but, but it was sort of like, um, you know, cold water and hot water meeting, right? It, it, and, and at that time, were you at the right place at the right time? that you said, okay, I speak veteran, and I've also been involved in higher education long enough that I can be this sort of integrator between the two? Man, it's such a, it's, it's such a big question, Dwayne. So to, to be honest, the, a, a, couple of, a couple of ways to, to interact with that. So Student Veterans of America was founded in 2008. The real story of SVA began just a couple of years before we had student veterans returning home from Iraq and Afghanistan and heading to school on the Montgomery GI Bill. Now, don't get me wrong, it was a generous benefit, but um, we had some really enterprising and super smart student veterans that were coming home uh, at that time. And what a lot of them were doing was that they were looking back to the original GI Bill, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. And if you can believe it, this June, the GI Bill will celebrate 75 years in existence. But there's been many iterations of the GI Bill over that 75 years. And most often, the GI Bill is usually uh, tied into a period of conflict, a war. After the war, the returning generation receives a new GI Bill. Once they've all gone to school, GI Bill slows down. We wait till the next conflict, new GI Bill. In the 80s, with the Montgomery GI Bill, we had the notion of a relatively long period of peace, but um, in an all-volunteer force, uh, shouldn't an opportunity for an education uh, be made available for everyone? So this was the first time, the Montgomery GI Bill, where we started to have uh, the concept of the notion that an opportunity for an education as a result of military service um, should not be short-sighted enough to just say that it's a cost of war, but instead a right of service. 
the post-9-11 GI Bill was really born out of a couple of U.S. senators at the time, both of them Vietnam veterans, uh, Jim Webb and Chuck Hagel. That said, these guys had the idea that, well, hey, the Montgomery GI Bill is good, but, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, conflicts in this global war on terrorism uh, truly heating up in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all over the world, to be honest, you know, shouldn't this new generation of warriors uh, perhaps have a more generous GI Bill? Well, student veterans were thinking the same thing. And how the original GI Bill paid your tuition directly to the university, provided a living stipend, we'd call that BAH now, had a stipend for books. If there was a certain uh, degree majors that were vital to national security, extra time was allotted. We'd call these majors STEM or science, technology, engineering, and math. And these student veterans were really pretty fortunate because Unlike any generation of veterans that had come before us, Duane, ours had the advent of social media. So no longer did you have to gather in person to be able to affect change, but we could start finding each other all over the country. And student veterans in our first three founding chapters at the University of Wisconsin, the University of Michigan, and Columbia University of New York might have never met up beforehand, but with the advent of social media, actually MySpace, if you can believe it, we started talking to each other and figuring out that these two U.S. senators were coming up with this new idea of the, of the post-9-11 GI Bill, which led to an awesome landmark piece of legislation that was actually signed into law as one of the last pieces of legislation President George W. Bush uh, signed into law. And, uh, and then uh, it ushered in this whole new opportunity for the post-9-11 era to go to school. But here's the part that was kind of interesting to the second half of your question. Did we start noticing, you know, this sort of like onslaught of veterans coming to higher ed? We had the post 9-11 GI Bill, which was great and generous, but institutions of higher learning weren't as prepared uh, for the uh, additional uh, volume of veterans that were going to be coming to higher education with this new benefit. So in 2008 and 2009, in the early days, a lot of what SVA did was mobilize um, independent student organizations from around the country uh, to unite under one banner. That's how SVA was born. And in the early days, it was a lot of um, campus-level advocacy, um, ensuring folks were uh, had a cultural competency for the population, um, making sure that uh, folks like VA certifying officials uh, were well-supported enough to be able to do their jobs effectively, and uh, looking at the expansion of physical space where veterans uh, who now find themselves as students or student veterans had the ability to convene, unite, access resources and services in sort of a, a one-shot stop shop, if you will. And that's where veteran centers on college campuses came to be. So that was a lot of the early days for us. Um, but overall, uh, I, I think that's a little bit as to the notion of, you know, why SVA uh, first started coming to be and the challenges that we were trying to overcome in higher education, at least in our early days. It sounds like in both organizationally and, and obviously you personally on, on your own campus is this idea of, uh, you know, see a need, fill a need. Um, uh, mm -hmm. you've mentioned advocacy a couple of times, right? And, and advocacy is, you know, a word that everybody knows what it means, but not sure what it means. Um, is simply hey. adv advocating for, for our group, veterans specifically, we're talking about, um, not for your own benefit, but essentially for, for the benefit of, of veterans, you know, across the nation and student veterans specifically, uh, in your case, uh, and then talking about this cultural competency piece and, and, you know, those who are longtime listeners of the show, um, know that, that I hit this, especially with mental health professionals need to be cultural 
culturally competent and dealing with veterans just the same way that faculty uh, necessarily do because the military is a a separate culture. Submariners, as I understand, is a totally different culture, even a subset from the Navy, Navy divers. I mean, and so there's, there's cultures within cultures and then there's a necessity of um, of, of being able to stand up and explain what this culture is, um, to be able to enhance the, uh, the experience of student veterans across the nation on all campuses. No, a hundred percent. And I mean, my, my sort of involvement in all of that, uh, was, was, you know, kind of this really interesting thing, man. I, I was an undergraduate at Florida State. I was a transfer junior. I was on a campus with over 40,000 undergraduates, a very traditional 18 to 22-year-old environment. I was 28 years old, and I remember my first two weeks on campus, uh, the feelings I had was that I couldn't have felt more like I was a fish out of water. And, you know, it was not that from an academic perspective, I found my classes to be um, all that difficult. And Honestly, like a lot of student veterans, after I got over the initial anxiety of like being back in school, being a student again, and actually showed up to classes, I'm like, oh my goodness, college isn't all that hard. I mean, it's hard, but relative to working full or part-time or being on active duty and preparing for deployment or being deployed, like this is manageable. I can do this. But it was, it was the feeling of, of, of a sense of belonging, Dwayne, that like, I just felt like as an older, non-traditional veteran in a college environment that it wasn't set up for me. So I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I belonged. And, you know, within my first two weeks on campus, I was kind of planning my exit, you know, like, man, maybe maybe this quote unquote check in the box to pursue my bachelor's degree in a traditional environment wasn't worthwhile. And so I was kind of planning my exit. And I had a late night conversation with my uh, girlfriend at the time, my, my wife now, but you know, essentially having this conversation was, um, you know, are you planning on quitting? And I was like, well, kind of. And she kind of gave me one of those tough love conversations that I think we all sometimes need. And uh, she's like, you know, you don't quit, like figure this out. And, you know, it was enough to get off the phone with her and then sort of think through, okay, what motivates me as a person? And I think personally, especially when we transition from something as culturally deep-rooted and tied to self-identity as military service, being a part of something bigger than yourself, when you leave that behind, whether after four years or 40, and you take that uniform off, identifying for yourself what motivates me as a person is a question we should all spend some deep, reflective time thinking about. And for me, the answer came to me pretty straightforwardly. I'm motivated as a person by how I can impact the most good. Dwayne, to be honest, I had no idea what that meant, but it was enough to help me get to sleep that night. And the next day, as corny as it sounds, walking to class, I saw an advertisement on campus at Florida State that said, are you a veteran? This room, this date, this time. And it was an advertisement for my Student Veterans of America chapter at Florida State, basically just saying, do you want to get together? And the funny thing is I'd been out of the Navy for five years at this point, and I'm not sure that I consider myself a veteran. And it's not that I didn't consider myself a veteran because I wasn't proud of my service or anything like that. I I certainly was, but I was getting out and trying to get my life going. To me, a veteran was my grandfather who served in World War II. You know, I'll be a veteran where I wear my campaign ball cap and my pants are a little higher around my waist. And I, you know, I'll be a veteran then when I've got time. But right now I'm like just trying to get my life going. So I didn't read that sign as, are you a veteran? I read it as, are you a grown-up? Do you miss talking to other grown-ups 
interacting with other grown-ups. And I was like, yes, I do. Because in this traditional environment, there aren't as many non-traditional students as you would normally expect to see. So I showed up to that meeting for the opportunity to talk to other what I thought were grown-ups. And they also happen to have this common bond of having served in the military. So they were veterans. And that's where I really started getting involved in SVA. Um, it was later that I kept trying to answer this question, well, how can I impact the most good? And I quickly realized that as veterans, we don't often tell our own stories. We're often the group of folks who are, you know, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and I'm never going to squeak because someone else needs it more than me. So we're the last ones to advocate for whatever it is that we might need. But I realized that being in higher education, the thing that I constantly found to be troublesome is as I started to become an advocate, I started to sort of outline plans for how we could maybe do good things. But academia operates on data and research. And all the data and research that I would be pointed to by administrators in higher education always told me the same thing, that veterans are low potential students that are going to be academically not ready for college. They're all going to suffer behavioral, mental health, homelessness, substance abuse, unemployment, and that we won't do very good in higher education, nor will we graduate. And I just started to realize that as I looked around me in higher education, I'd never purport that veterans aren't without some challenges, but I wasn't seeing what the research told me about. But then I started to dive into sort of the research methodologies of these uh, uh, reports that I was being handed off and told was research, and they were all very qualitative in nature, you know, uh, surveyed nine veterans, surveyed 12 veterans at a you know, a halfway home in Southern California, and now all veterans are at, that are in college are at risk of homelessness. But I started to realize, Dwayne, that there was a lot of qualitative research in higher education, but what lacked was quantitative, population-level data. And so I knew that I found my calling in veterans in higher education by being able to become a researcher, to strike out only qualitative but also add quantitative so that we could see the full picture of veterans in higher education. The cool thing is that I've now been doing this since at least 2010, and what I can tell you is the aggregated population-level data for veterans in higher education is not only that we're performing markedly well, in many cases we're outperforming our civilian peers, and we're thriving not only in school but even upon graduation. So this has really been something that I'm willing to geek about about as much as I possibly can, but I feel like you wound me up and I just wound up on a soapbox. So I apologize for that. No, no. And it, and it was, and it was, is exactly what I, I think we need to hear. And there were a couple of great points, uh, both generally and also for you personally, um, is, is you had this, you know, this long dark midnight of this may not be the thing for me. You know, I, I would, I would probably bet that there were signs around campus that says, are you a veteran before you had this epiphany of I'm going to stay in and make changes. You just didn't notice it because your mindset was, was in this, I don't belong here. Uh, But then with some gentle prodding from people that are more intelligent and probably much more attractive than us. (laughs) Mostly my wife. Yep. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) To be able to say, you know, look, there's something there. And so picking your head up and looking around, I think this is what I see with a lot of veterans is they don't consider the alternatives. They only, um, you know, they get in this fixed mindset and, and that, and, and it, 
I get the sense that you shifted from this fixed mindset of I don't belong here because I'm a veteran to to really why don't I belong here? Um and and, and can I belong here? And is there the ability to um to to you know get to belong here. Uh, but then this other idea of, of sort of what everybody knows, right? You know, common knowledge and, and this, you know, everybody knows that veterans aren't any, you know, aren't, aren't good in higher education. Every it's, it's just, you know, it's something that's just accepted. Like you said, the, the research is there. Uh, I had Sebastian Younger on the episode or on the podcast back in episode 117. And he talks about some of the challenges with the affluence of our society that gives us the ability to sort of marginalize those who served in the military, right? Let's say they, they served in the military. Let's give them a, a barely living wage and, and sort of set them on the shelf over here. Um, but that wouldn't have happened when the warrior was a necessary part of, uh, of society, right? If you think in indigenous cultures, the warriors would come back. They wouldn't say, oh, all warriors are um, broken and marginalized. No, they needed them to to exist. And this goes back to your 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 point about, you know, scholars and warriors and, and leading the nation together. Um, and, and being able to break that mold and prove what people know to be true, um, conventional wisdom to be able to prove conventional wisdom wrong. Right. I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. I, um, I got to know, uh, Sebastian Younger, um, when I was an undergraduate at Florida state, uh, we started something that still exists today called the student veteran film festival. And Sebastian's film, uh, The Life and Time of Tim Hetherington, uh, Which Way is the Frontline from Here, uh, actually won one year. So he came down uh, to the university to collect the $25,000 cash prize. And the stand-up guy that he is, he actually donated that uh, to uh, first responder life-saving training um, for uh, correspondents who go to cover war uh, to ensure that they can you know, apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, elevate those types of things. A phenomenal human being, but exactly to your point, it's become accepted wisdom that veterans are not going to do well in school. And th- the thing is, man, not only is that accepted wisdom, I, we, we all believe it, but it couldn't be more false. And when you look at the aggregated data of all veterans that have returned from service in the post 9-11 era and made their transition, what you actually find is that we're among the most successful members of society, not, not the lesser than. And the difficulty is that absent data, anecdote and assumption rule the day. And not just from just how we perceive the world around us, but even to include the lawmaking po- uh, process in Washington, D.C. Absent data, anecdote is all we have to rely on, and assumption shapes the world around us. So what we looked at at Student Veterans of America was how could we get at the data to prove definitively, empirically, how veterans are performing, specifically through the lens of higher education, but then more broadly through what we call economic opportunity. So career, employment, underemployment, lifetime earnings, etc. And what we found, dude, this is, this is what most people do not know. Our generation, the post-9-11 generation, fully 72% of us are already not earning we are already in possession of an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, or higher. All veterans alive, actually 66% of us meet that definition. If you look at society, all Americans, uh, that number is only about, about 50%. So any way you slice it, ours, the post-9-11 generation, are the most educated members of society in America, 
period. We are not underperforming our civilian counterparts. We're actually overperforming them. And then if you look at it from a lifetime earnings perspective, veterans with a bachelor's degree are on average earning $17,000 more per year than our civilian counterparts. And with a master's, we're earning $29,000 more per year than our civilian counterparts. We need to, as a generation, be advocates for increased access to data on how we're performing, because otherwise, myth and misperception is what's allowed to pervade throughout how society views us. And I think you make the great point, also codified by the great Sebastian Younger, that this is not how warriors have come home in generations past. The World War II generation quite literally built the American middle class. And a lot of people don't realize they did, through, they did so through higher education. Fully 52% of returning service members went through post-secondary education. They would not have had enough engineers to put a man on the moon had it not been for the veterans who, on average, had an eighth grade level of education before they served in Europe and the Pacific. But they came home, earned a degree on the GI Bill, and built the American middle class and ushered in a new era of economic prosperity. Ours, the post-9-11 generation, exhibits more similarities to their generation than any that has come before or since. That said, we are already beating them in higher education. Over the span of the existence of the post-9-11 era, what more will we beat the greatest generation in? Dwayne, I, I could only ask, does that mean that potentially we, those that served after September 11, 2001, could in fact be the next greatest generation? The answer might be yes, but it certainly is not going to be so if people do not have access to data to demonstrably prove that we are outperforming our civilian peers and shouldn't be thought of as lesser than, but as better members of society with the servant's heart to continue to move our country forward and solve any problems that she may face now or in the future. I 100% agree with you. Um, I've said it before. I've written about it before that this generation has the potential to be this century's greatest generation. Um, we don't have the numbers, but as you alluded to before, we do have the amplification of technology, right? Even this mm -hmm. conversation here um, is going to be able to be replicated and listened to and, and, and the message disseminated. Um, some of my concern, and I absolutely love the optimism. It's great. Um, and there is a subset of the, the veterans now who also believe in these myths and misperceptions, right? Yeah, that, that they're told right. um, that, that they say, well, well, of course, I'm not going to be a good uh, student because I'm a veteran. This is what this guy tells me. Um, I think back even to your own personal story where if you hadn't been selected for green to gold and your company commander and your XO said, that's it, grunt, you know, E5s don't get into college, you wouldn't, you would have believed that, right? You would have sort of mm -hmm. internalized that. But instead, you had a couple of mentors that spoke into you and said, we know that there's more potential that you have um, and changed your path, uh, set you on a path that they wanted you back in the, in the Navy, of course. Um, but, but it changed your path because you had mentors speaking positivity into you and you listened. Um, and this is some of the challenge, I think, with some of the veterans now. There is a gulf, not just between the civilian and the military, but in those that believe, those veterans that believe that they can be, that we have the potential to change the world, and those that simply accept the fact that, well, there's this is it. The best part of my life is, <laughs> is the ages between 20 and 25. 
Yeah, brother. I call. It, uh, I've heard it referred to as the Uncle Rico syndrome. Uh, if you can remember <laughs> from Napoleon Absolutely. Dynamite, right? Like the coolest yes. thing I ever did was a quarterback of my high school football team. Like that, we should not live in the past in that regard. But I think that notion to positivity and solid mentors and the ability to be open to it and listening to it is important. I, I think that's why the work that you do is so vital and, and being able to lend a voice to that. And, and again, man, I mean, it's, it, it's not to say that we're, we're not without our challenges as a generation, um, but we are nearly stacking the deck as it pertains to potential. And the more of us that can both understand that and have the right type of mentorship and hear it, I think it is going to accelerate how quickly ours is the generation that will achieve the mantle of leadership now and far into the future. Yeah, you are uh, you are preaching to a card carrying member of the choir, and uh, and this is um, it, definitely everything that I hoped it would be, and and something that you and I could probably go on for hours. Um, <laughs> one of the Maybe reasons why <laughs> probably over a couple, um, and and one of the reasons why um, you know I reached out is I'm trying to connect with all of the organizations that are involved in the Warrior Wellness Alliance. Longtime listeners know we've had Casey Kelly on the show a couple of different times. Um, and Casey even quoted you uh, whenever they were talking about the Warriors Connect program and gathering this data because it is we don't we can't solve a problem unless we define the problem first and we don't define the problem without the data. Um, so it, it, just very briefly, maybe SVA's um, uh, involvement in the Warrior Wellness Alliance or anything major that you have coming up that you'd like the audience to know about. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Warrior Wellness Alliance, uh, a fantastic initiative of the George W. Bush Presidential uh, Institute. The, the, the simple notion as it pertains to behavioral and mental health is, you know, how can you bring together uh, providers of mental and behavioral health care and support uh, with veteran organizations that are actually working with veterans on the ground level? Uh, to be honest with you, Dwayne, uh, before my involvement uh, with President Bush and the Warrior Wellness Alliance, I was always fairly reluctant to have conversations about behavioral and mental health, which is ironic because my wife works at the National Council for uh, Behavioral Health here in Washington, D.C., and she's in the industry. Uh, but I was reluctant because, you know, I felt as a, as a veteran and an observer of our community that it seemed to be the only thing people could talk about, almost sometimes uh, with a morbid-like fascination, uh, whether it be veteran suicide, uh, anxiety, uh, overall mental well-being, and, and I wasn't sure that it was contributing to a positive uh, conversation. But with our work with the Warrior Wellness Alliance, other veteran organizations, uh, and providers and clinicians, what I better gain the understanding is that, like, Overall, mental and behavioral well-being is, is an objective for all Americans. And more to the beginning of our conversation, how you so eloquently put it, uh, so, so go our veterans, so go our nation. You know, I think that our country is facing a behavioral and mental health crisis. Uh, I think the most recent statistics that I read are that uh, over, uh, it's, what, 123 Americans die by suicide every day. And it's, it's not a conversation that anyone is willing to have. But aren't we nothing if we are not the leaders that the military taught us to be? And so difficult and uncomfortable conversations, even if nothing else but being willing to have them and open to learn more about them, is something that I think that veterans bring uh, to this bigger American behavioral mental health conversation. And the Warrior Wellness Alliance is, is really striving to bring veterans closer to 
care uh, wherever they are. And I think to your bigger point about the notion of collecting data, uh, Casey Kelly is, a, is, is, is really a genius in, in her ability to bring both clinicians and veteran-serving organizations together, uh, but also providing the space where people can literally donate their social media data uh, to be studied so that we can understand uh, where uh, potential opportunities to connect veterans to care, especially at the times that they need them, might be. But even crazier than that, Dwayne, uh, you know, how could we look to be preventative in the future, uh, such that we avoid um, the notion that crisis might even occur in the future by making sure that overall behavioral and mental well-being is just a, a ubiquitous part of not only being in the military or making the transition to civilian life or overall just the rest of your time as a veteran. And I think that that's so cool to have that opportunity and that platform to work towards overall mental uh, and behavioral health well-being uh, for a new generation of warriors and now veterans. Yeah, I really appreciate that, um, even acknowledging that shift, right? In, in many of the, the organizations say, well, this is what I do. Um, and, and this is something as a mental health provider and a veteran, uh, on the outside, I see that, um, uh, mental health and everything that people think that that means, um, it's always an afterthought, right? If college doesn't work, if employment doesn't work, if family doesn't work, if, if adventure and wild things doesn't work, there's a shed out back that's called mental health. Um, and it's always <laughs> treated as this, this last ditch when something breaks down and it gets into crisis where it's actually foundational, right? It's this health and wellness, our psychological wellness, um, you know, it, whether we have it internally in ourselves or we develop it, um, that's the foundation upon which the house of post-military life is built. If you have cracks in those foundations, yes, that house is going to be less stable. But if you can get those cracks fixed or if you can keep those cracks from occurring, as you said in the, uh, the, the prevention phase, um, then the post-military life is going to be that much more stable. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Uh, and I'm huge on the prevention piece because if I was a medical doctor, I'd be an emergency room doc, right? Veterans come to see me either right before the crisis, during the crisis or after a crisis. Um, right. and, and really how do we get them? To, 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 to have that future wife that you had on the phone saying, no, no, you don't quit. That's not what you do. Um, persevere and push through this discomfort because, you know, think about how that, how life would have been for you if you would have pulled out and said, no, that's it. Um, and, and you don't have that serendipitous conversation. Uh, and so I really appreciate this idea of integrating psychological wellness in everything that we do to include uh, secondary education and post-military life. I think it's great. Well, Dwayne, the only last point that I'd make to that is uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but uh, the Edelman Public Relations Firm, it's the, the largest publicly held or privately held uh, PR firm in the world, actually founded by a World War II veteran, if you can believe it. Uh, but, but they every year do something called the Veterans Wellbeing Survey, and it's honestly uh, surveys perceptions of veterans, active duty, um, uh, hiring managers, uh, civilians writ large, educators, etc. And, and the thing that's so fascinating is the past couple of years with this nationwide population uh, sample survey is that, you know, a lot of people in America believe that most veterans have a behavioral or mental health challenge. Interestingly, a lot of veterans believe the same thing. And wouldn't it be cool if society started to shift their notion of a veteran, kind of like you talked about and Sebastian Younger talks about, but this notion that if we shifted our perception that like 
veterans are are doing well. When a veteran was not doing well, it would be obvious to all of us around them, whether that be at the family level, the friends level, colleagues, etc. And it would be absent the norm to see a veteran not doing well versus, oh, well, they're a veteran and you know most of them have a problem. And if we saw it and recognized it faster, we could provide wraparound services to ensure that the veteran in crisis receives the care that they need, but I think even more to the point that we've been making, that we can prevent a crisis from ever even occurring. That's exactly it, and that's the goal of me and, and a number of us, especially in the mental health field, because we've not done a very good job um, you know, uh, changing our own image of, of the mental health field. Um, but yes, right. the idea of changing the way that we think and talk about federal mental health uh, and wellness and everything else. And I really appreciate you coming on the show um, to, to be able to be part of that conversation. Uh, if people wanted to find out more about you, of course, SVA is, is a big organization, both in numbers and on, uh, on the internet. Um, how can listeners find out more about you and Student Veterans of America? I do very much appreciate that, Dwayne. You can uh, always find us on the web at studentveterans.org. Uh, you can call our national headquarters. Uh, keep in mind, we're on the East Coast, so mostly Monday through Friday hours there, but at 202-223-4710. And if folks are looking to connect with me, uh, you can find me on, on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn, and I'd be super happy to connect with folks on either of those platforms as well. Yeah, this has been great, Jared. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to share your expertise with the listeners of the show. No doubt, Dwayne. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, and it was uh, really awesome to uh, to spend a little bit of time talking about things that I I care about so greatly for a community and a population uh, that I've just got such deep love and uh and, and care for. So thank you, man. Yeah. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about federal mental health. It was great to have Jared on the show, not just to talk about the work that he's doing with Student Veterans of America, but as an example of the transitory nature of service members in their post-military life. You heard me list off all the stuff that he did after leaving the Navy, and that's kind of the norm for veterans once they leave the military. I only stayed in my first position for 18 months. I might have stayed longer if opportunities hadn't present themselves, but I also got the first job that would hire me, and it wasn't really a great fit. I'm not one who's advocating job hopping, and I don't think Jared would either. That around-the-world overview he gave us was the highlights, but I'm sure that there were challenging moments in there as well. And speaking of challenging moments, I really appreciated Jared sharing his story about the time that he almost left school. This leads me to say a few words about serendipity and paying attention to beneficial chance. And listening to Jared's story and the story of Student Veterans of America, you get a lot of things that seem to happen by chance. Serendipity is one of those words that we kind of think we know what it means, but not really. It's finding something that you weren't looking for that has a positive outcome. It's paying attention to the world around you. Being aware of what you want rather than seeking out what you think you need. Like a lot of other stuff in life, serendipity has been researched. One study analyzed a number of serendipitous events and found that these events had three things in common. A chance encounter, a prepared mind, and an act of noticing. Consider that late night conversation that Jared had with his future wife. And the chance encounter the next day with the sign that said, Are you a veteran? Come to this room at this time. That was one thing that he couldn't control. He happened to be walking to class. 
He could have taken a different route to class. He could have drove there, rode a bike. He could have left later and was running late and didn't see it. I even mentioned it in the show. There were likely signs the whole time, but his mind wasn't prepared for it. He had one foot out the door. His mind was preparing for departure, not to find things to stay for. And he paid attention, engaged in the act of noticing. He wasn't looking for the sign, but found it when he was in the right frame of mind. Consider how having a prepared mind and practicing the act of noticing can help you. There are countless serendipitous events that got me to where I am today, and more that will get me to where I'm going to go in the future. I can control two out of the three things that bring about a positive outcome for something I wasn't looking for, and you can too. You just have to keep your eyes and your mind open to what the world has to offer. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST126. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to leave an honest rating or review on your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at VeteranMentalHealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. To check it out, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you heard makes you think that you could talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc is trying to bring the discussion about federal mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then... Remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real. Found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly, death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies. Broke out facilities that try to put an end to me. R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility.
Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man, you've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.